0: Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hello everyone, it's been a while and I'm really excited to get back to the podcast. It's been very hectic with COVID as I'm sure most of you have been experiencing as well. But there's also been some really interesting developments with respect to um, how we think about and how we manage chronic pain. My hope is to start bringing in individuals that are really uh, can provide us with some great insights in terms of how we're viewing chronic pain in 2022, but also how we can incorporate these skills in our clinical practice, but also encourage patients who are living with persistent pain or chronic pain, to be able to adopt some of these practices in their day-to-day life. What I'm going to do is probably divide this talk, maybe about three different sections. And uh, what we're going to call it is a chronic pain update. But really what I want to focus on is some of the skills that are being advocated for with pain reprocessing therapy In particular, a new book that has been released by a gentleman by the name of Alan Gordon, who has a lived experience of chronic pain, but who has recently with his colleague put out this book, which is called Chronic Pain, The Way Out. I'm going to bring aspects of that, but there are principles that have been incorporated in his book that have been there for quite a while. And I will create some links for you regarding some really nice summary of a paper That was released by Schubner and Lumni, and that was in 2019, which really helped to consolidate psychological therapies for centralized pain. And what they were proposing with this paper was an integrative uh, assessment and treatment model. So bringing in all these new therapies, which we consider third-wave therapies, which would include things like mindfulness and acceptance and commitment therapies, I just want you to know that I don't receive any kind of income for this podcast. Uh, I will make a recommendation around the book, even though I have no relationship with that author and do not receive any kind of remuneration from that author. So what I want to talk about today is to look at some of the new new information that's coming in around pain science and how our approach to chronic pain is changing. So as I mentioned, we just want to see how we can incorporate some of these skills in our day-to-day functioning, but also how can we apply these in the clinical setting, and especially things that may not take a lot of time. Often there's very simple things we can do that can make a huge difference to how patients are experiencing pain. And always before we begin, we have to appreciate that ultimately the journey is the patients. And there are many clinical situations where we may have uh, good intentions at the beginning of our interaction that we really want to see patients incorporate these skills in order to have what we view as a really important quality of life, but they're just not there yet. And I think we have to be respectful of that and that's totally okay. Our job is to really keep them safe with the uh, tools that we're recommending And also support them in that journey to find their quality of life. I always come back to this quote, which I really love, which I picked up in another podcast many years ago, which basically states that knowledge is possibility, or you could look at evidence is possibility. It only has power if we use it, and it only has power if we're ready to use it or know how to use it. So, as mentioned, pain science is evolving and functional MRIs are really opening the, the huge amount of uh, information that's out there and helping us really narrow down and to understand how this very complex organ sitting on our shoulders actually functions. So, it's, they're teaching us a lot about the role of the brain in the development and the maintenance of chronic pain and, more importantly, really helping us to understand that our approach needs to change. So if we look at the the function of pain which we had mentioned in previous podcast is that pain is a danger signal. It is a universal experience. There's not too many people on this planet that do not experience pain. There is a group of individuals, very small number, who actually have some abnormality in their peripheral harm-sensing nociceptors so they don't pick up the warning signs like most of us do. And those individuals actually have a higher risk of having significant uh, injury to their body and are actually higher at risk of dying because their body is not responding to the pain alarm the way it should. Not only is our brain designed to pay attention to pain... More importantly, it's going to seek relief. And this will come into play as we talk about how our bodies try to find relief. And sometimes in finding relief, we sometimes can contribute to structural pain. So overall, though, pain is essential for human survival. So when pain starts to become chronic, and this is this amazing work that Hashimi has done out of Dalhousie University, And the work that they started doing was in 2013. There's an excellent paper that they've published that I will link to the uh, notes of the talk where they're actually showing how the longer pain is present, the more likely you'll see a shift from normal nociceptive pathways to these emotive circuitries that are actually driving chronic pain. So we're going to dig into that. So this shift moves away from the normal kind of communication that we see with the thalamus and the limbic system, as well as the cortices. And there is a renewed focus of pain pathways in the medial prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And if most of us remember what the amygdala does, it really is that threat detector. It is so important to how our body experiences and perceives pain. The amygdala and the medial prefrontal cortex are the pathways that process fear, sadness, anger, and danger. So these emotive circuitries really start to drive the mechanism behind chronic pain. In some ways, what's happened is that fear has actually hijacked the amygdala. And our body becomes almost more hypervigilant, managing sort of the triggers and the associations that we start to make around our pain experience fear or high alert triggers become the fuel that drives this process. The longer pain remains, the better our brain gets at being in pain. So this is why it's so important early on when a patient is experiencing structural or acute pain that we're aggressive in terms of addressing the experience of pain that they're having, but also trying to lower the tolerance of that pain so that they're able to tolerate the normal kind of progression that we see as tissue heals. We want the patient to progress through the normal pathway, but the longer the patient is experiencing pain, the more we start to see a shift in where pain is processed, even when there's nothing damaging or dangerous happening in their, in their body. So the longer pain is there, the more inaccurate the signal becomes, but to the patient, the experience is very real. It doesn't matter that there's nothing dangerous or damaging happening in their body. So how did we get here? And more importantly, what can we do about this? So this great book by Alan Gordon and Alon Zeev was released in 2021. And the name of the book is Healing Chronic Pain, The Way Out. When I went through this book, it's really about how our brain learns pain and how to uncouple that pain-danger-protect link. There's an excellent podcast put out by Science Versus. The session was October 29, 2021, And the name of that podcast was Chronic Pain, Can Our Brain Fix It? And in that podcast, they interview Alan Gordon, as well as Dr. Hashimi from Dalhousie, and an individual who works for Science Versus who is experiencing chronic pain. And they have a really interesting conversation around the principles that they've used in The Way Out. Now, most of the principles that they've used have been out there for a long time. So one of these processes is called pain reprocessing therapy. And this is really where what you're using are skills to retrain the brain's neural pathways to reduce the pain, danger, alarm. They use techniques like mindfulness as well, which become really important. And he refers to this as being somatic tracking. They talk about avoidance behaviors. Now, from my perspective, I see these as calming techniques, but we'll get into that as we move along in this podcast. I did reach out to Alan Gordon because I would love to interview him about his book, but you could imagine he's a very busy man. So, the paper that they are basing much of their book on is a paper put out by Schubner and Lumney in 2019. It's basically entitled Psychological Therapies for Centralized Pain. And this is a really nice read. It's a beautiful summary looking at the different waves of psychological therapies that we use to help manage many common conditions that we see in ourselves and in others, such as anxiety obsessive-compulsive behavior, things like that. So it is a really nice summary paper, and I would encourage everyone to have a look at that. So pain reprocessing therapy basically pulls on, if we think about the multi-dimensions of pain, it pulls on the psychological dimension and the biological dimension. So as mentioned, what it's trying to do is retrain the brain to interpret signals from the body properly through a lens of safety. And we'll explain how we get there. It is a form in my mind of desensitization that we use these mind-body techniques. And it's very, very similar to the techniques that are used in fear of heights or fear of flying. And I actually had a really interesting conversation with an individual because it's always hard for me sometimes when I think about, you know, the fears that we can develop. When I think about fear of needles, for example, which I see commonly in the emergency room, and one patient, because it's always interesting to me that uh, we can develop these, and basically they said the way to understand an individual's fear is to come at it with some empathy and think about your own fear. And for me, it's about spiders. I'm absolutely terrified of spiders. So when I bring the empathy and think about what how my body responds to spiders, I can totally understand how an individual would feel around uh, fear of flying, for example. But many of the patients who have developed chronic pain have developed a fear of pain at some level. I mean, that's literally what's going on. I can't imagine that having that, to confront that fear day after day after day, how exhausting that would be. And obviously, not everybody identifies with the emotion fear. And I will explain how that amygdala is actually processing experiences that we're having, they may not be entitled fear, but the brain is processing those as fear-based. So the goal of pain reprocessing therapy is to reduce the danger signals and foster that sense of safety as we mentioned. What we want to be able to do is to look at some of the key simple techniques that they talk about in this book that we can do every day in our clinical practice. So what I'm going to mention is that one of the most important things that we can use is language. So language that actually helps dial down fear. And I recently had an interaction with a young girl who was involved in a motor vehicle collision who suffered a whiplash injury. So this is that hyperextension, uh, hyperflexion, hyperextension type injury that we see when someone is hit from behind. She was assessed and seen in the emergency room and had some x-rays done. But she basically was told, uh, now this is her story, obviously what she heard, which is really important, is that she was told that she had permanent damage to her neck. So when I explored that with her, what that meant, because even saying you have permanent damage is a scary way to think about an injury, is that what she was told is that the normal curve that she would have in her cervical spine was no longer there. And what I found really interesting, because it's not uncommon for individuals who experience neck pain to have muscle tension, because your muscles are going to try and stabilize that painful area. And this often does show up in an x-ray as a loss of that normal kind of what we call a lordotic curve. When I reviewed her x-ray, in fact, she did not have a loss of that curve, but it would not have surprised me if that initially had happened, but that usually settles down as tissue heals. Because what's happening is the muscles are basically responding and they're trying to protect that neck area that's been injured. So in fact, she did not have permanent damage in her neck, but she was absolutely terrified to move her neck because she didn't want to injure it anymore. She was only in her 20s. So the language that we use to describe injuries to patients or the language that they're using, it's really important to break that down because it is a scary place to be if you're thinking about permanent damage. We also want to try and view the patient's pain through a lens of fear and danger. It's using that analogy of that fear of spiders, for example. So when we can bring that empathy, it really helps us to understand it from the individual's perspective, as well as it allows us to connect with them in a way that allows us to bring patience and understanding. The other concept of what we can do in our day-to-day interactions is think of ways to promote safety. So we talked about that in a previous podcast. Uh, We were talking about the SAFE-ED. And this is really about the principles of uh, trauma-informed, trauma-guided principles. But even in someone, if you think about fear and danger as being the fuel that is driving the actions of the amygdala, If we bring words of safety and we promote movements that feel safe to the patient, then those things can help dial down the threat. For example, telling uh, an individual to go out and walk twice a day may seem really simple, but for somebody who's living with persistent pain, that can actually trigger a pain response because believe me you, they have tried many times. So what you want to be able to do is to find out what kind of activity feels safe to the patient. So we don't want activities that have historically caused significant flare-ups. If they're keen on going to those activities and are really wanting to, because they enjoy those activities like walking, then what we can do is get them to break it down in a different way, such as using some of the skills of pacing. So it's important that they allow themselves To experience some of that pain, but they don't want to aggravate the pain by tucking when they walk. The example I always use is that if you're looking at your feet when you're walking, you're in a pain tuck. So that always makes the back and the hips and the knees work harder. So walking may not be the ideal activity. So maybe the patient wants to actually go into a pool. Maybe water feels safe. So those are the ways you can explore some of the safety kinds of activities. The other thing is to be consistent in your approach. Those are really simple things that we can think about, you know, the kind of language that we use, that we bring empathy, viewing the patient's perception of what we're saying through a lens of fear and danger and thinking about ways of promoting activities and languages that feel safe to the patient. And as I mentioned, we'll expand some of this as we go along. But first, I think it's really interesting to try and explore what we're understanding about how our body and brain develop chronic pain and what the remedy is for us with with the development of this. Alan Gordon, in his book, uses kind of a different classification that I think can be helpful when he describes the two types of pain that we all commonly know. One is acute pain. He refers to this as structural or short-term pain. And then there's chronic pain which he refers to as neuroplastic or long-term pain. Now, the term neuroplastic is interesting because what that basically is suggesting is that you have an altered nervous system. We often will call that uh, in the uh, literature, noceoplastic. So you can see how some of these term- this terminology can be confusing. In Lumley and Schubner's uh, paper, they talk about trying to avoid the term persistent, And the reason why, which I thought was really interesting, because I always thought persistent pain was good terminology to be using because it really described the fact that the patient would always be in pain. But their argument is that when we use the term persistent pain, what's happening is that the patient feels that there is no hope, that this is something that will never go away. And in fact, some of the skills that have been tested in pain reprocessing therapy have shown that we can actually not only dial down the threat, But in some patients, this threat has actually been diminished completely. So there is uh, some hope in some of this therapy that uh, is out there around pain reprocessing therapy. So what do we mean by acute or structural pain? Well, this is that normal response to an injury, illness, or surgery. Usually indicates that something new has happened in the tissue, like a new condition, or there is some progression of a pre-existing condition. And usually this resolves within zero to three months. I'm here to tell you, though, that I think we need to be much more quicker in our response to patients who are experiencing severe acute pain that are not getting resolution of that pain. And usually around two weeks post-injury or post-surgery, we should see that pain resolving Now, if we've made sure that nothing new has happened in this tissue, that there's no complication related to their injury or their surgery, then we should start using some of the techniques around pain reprocessing therapy. So even though it's designed to address neuroplastic or long-term pain, some of these skills can be very effective for acute pain to dial down the threat, especially in some vulnerable populations. And we'll talk about those vulnerable populations as we go along what is chronic or neuroplastic pain? We sort of touched on that briefly, but this is the pain that persists beyond the normal tissue healing. And what we're using now is that greater than three months. And I'm not really sure how that time frame gets determined, but in my view, if we're seeing somebody two weeks out post-injury and that pain is escalating, we need to be doing something now because that patient is high risk for developing a neuroplastic pain syndrome. So why this develops and what we can do about it is really important. Neuroplastic pain, as we described, is long-term pain caused by an altered or changed nervous system. And this occurs at the peripheral nociceptor, those harm-sensing nociceptors that we have under our skin, and also this occurs in the brain. What's important here is that the nervous system has been altered, it's not been damaged. That means because it can change in one direction, it can actually change in the other direction here's something really interesting, you know, can structural pain and neuroplastic pain be happening at the same time? And the answer is absolutely. And in fact, it's sometimes it's hard to know what type of pain it is because both can feel the same. So you can understand how this could be so confusing for patients. But neuroplastic pain and structural pain have very distinct characteristics. And we're going to talk about those a little bit further on in the podcast. But right now, I just want to explore the normal pain pathway with you and then share with you what we believe the science is telling us about how it gets altered. Did you know there are three major body systems involved in pain processing and pain signaling? So there's the nervous system, there is the immune system, and then there's the endocrine system. So if we look at the nervous system first, obviously we've got two major components. We have the central nervous system made up of the brain and spinal cord. And then we have the peripheral nervous system which is made up of these harm-sensing nociceptors and the nerve tracts that they're attached to that feed information into the spinal cord and brain. Within that nervous system, there are two nerve cells. So one is called a neuron and the other is called a glial cell. And glial cells are friggin' cool. Meaning that if you're really interested in understanding the science around neurocognitive disorders, neurodegenerative disorders, COVID long haulers. So when you're trying to figure out what's happening with patients who have developed COVID, but long term COVID, you need to look into the science around glial cells. Now, there are millions and millions of glial cells, not only in our central nervous system, but also in our peripheral nervous system. And they are the workhorses of the nervous system. They are the caretakers of the neurons. I like to think of them as the secret service. I think we've talked about these guys in previous podcasts. And so how I kind of frame these two types of cells is I literally see the glial cell as mentioned as the workhorse and the neuron is the princess. So the glial cell is literally what takes care of, what pampers, what keeps healthy our neurons. What makes the glial cells so interesting, besides the fact that they are just incredibly amazing types of nerve cells, is that they excrete this very, very powerful pro-inflammatory mediators. So this would be the cytokines and chemokines that we've mentioned previously in other podcasts in covid when they're talking about cytokine surge this is what they're talking about they're talking about these pro-inflammatory mediators so this is where you can see that link to covid so there are two ways that our nervous system can trigger pain one is through these nociceptors so we think about this as an objective kind of uh, stimulation and then there's the subjective way that our brain our nervous system can trigger pain and that's through our brain So the nociceptors are objective and the brain is subjective, right? It's a perception thing. So all pain, though, regardless if you live with chronic pain, regardless of of how the pain happens, is processed in your brain 100% of the time, even though you feel it in your body. So that is really important. How do we know that pain can be triggered by our brain? We know this because of functional MRIs. And there's also this great documented story in the literature that's been there in the New England Journal of Medicine since 1995. And this is the story of the construction worker who jumped on a board that had a nail. And what happened is that that nail went through his boot and he got stuck. When he realized that this was happening, this poor gentleman had severe, severe, intense pain. So much so that they had to rush him to the hospital. And when they got him there, they had to literally put him out in order to get that nail out of that boot. And miraculously, when they took that boot off, there was zero injury to his foot. And in fact, he had very weird-looking toes, and the nail came right through an opening between his big toe and his second toe. Did that mean that his pain wasn't real? Absolutely not. His pain was real. His brain had processed this information based on what he could see, what he could feel and what he had any kind of previous experience that he might have had. And if you work on a construction site, you probably have seen somebody step on a nail. So all of that stuff came to the forefront and gave him that experience. And he basically said, This is bad. And his pain receptors sent out a danger signal that were experienced by him as intense pain. So why was his pain so intense? So to understand that, we need to understand how pain signals travel through our nervous system. And they travel through the nervous system by two routes. I like to think of them in this way. I think about a very quick route, which is the Trans-Canada Highway. So that's the fast track. And these are these myelinated A delta fibers. And then there's the back tracks, right? There's the slow tracks. These are the back roads. So they're very slow. So these are the C fibers. What happened to him when he jumped on that boot That nociceptor in his toe got triggered. The quick pathway, that A-delta fiber pathway went up to his brain. That brain made a calculation and basically how dangerous is this threat to my survival and what do I need to do right now? And often what's really interesting is that we don't feel pain with that initial exposure. Now, what happened to this poor man is that because he was stuck to that board, he couldn't get away. So you can imagine how that would escalate the alarm even louder. And by the time his slow pathway kicked in or his C-fiber kicked in, he was experiencing really intense pain. So that's why the intensity was so loud, because his brain needed him to do something. So why would our brain and pain circuitry be wired this way, right? Well, what is the benefit of that? Well, in fact, there is benefit. It is more of an evolutionary benefit but always, 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 in terms of how we process pain, it's about survival first, right? This is what allows uh, an army personnel who's injured on the uh, battlefield, who might have a broken limb, uh, and if he experienced that pain, he wouldn't move anywhere, that he will actually not experience pain so that he can get away from that danger or that will allow a mother to run into a burning building to rescue her three children, even though she's got third degree burns on her arms and her legs. So it's about survival first, it's about protection second, and then it's about seek relief third. So I want you to remember that because that becomes important as we think about human behavior around pain. Once pain travels through these fibers, It is the brain that processes this information. And our brain has the ability to affect where, when, and how much pain we experience. In patients with chronic pain, what's happened is that the amygdala has basically hijacked their brain. So the amygdala is trained to respond to all high alert triggers. And that's an evolutionary thing. So you can see how this can be problematic, especially when pain becomes chronic. But even more so in our, in our modern world, there are so many high alert triggers in our environment that really were never there, you know, thousands of years ago. So our brain and the technology that it's been exposed to, say, in the last 30 years, I mean, our brain has not caught up. So there are things in our spaces that actually can be triggering these high alert signals, that sometimes patients can explore uh, and and maybe consider changing them um, or even being aware of them as how they might be contributing to your pain experience. Because the brain itself doesn't know what is causing the pain. It's just processing all of these triggers as a threat. So sometimes dialing down threats that we can recognize that may seem minor but they can be very impactful to how you're experiencing pain all right everyone we're going to end it there pick it up next week where we're going to dive into the role of the endocrine system and the immune system so thanks for staying with me hopefully you enjoyed this podcast and you'll enjoy the next few coming up around pain reprocessing therapy it's kind of cool stuff thank you for joining us for this edition of pain talk To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.